Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Friday, November 10th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Craig McIver. Until about two weeks ago, Craig was a director in the New York office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, a lawyer and specialist in international human rights, law, policy, and methodology. He served at the UN since 1992. Uh, as chief of the human rights and development team in the 1990s, he led the development of OHCHR's original work on human rights-based approaches to development and human rights-sensitive definitions of poverty. He also served as the UN's senior human rights advisor in both Palestine and Afghanistan, led the team of human rights specialists attached to the high-level mission on Darfur, head of the rule of law and democracy unit, and served as chief of the economic and social issues section and chief of the development and economic and social issues branch at OHCHR headquarters. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Great to meet you, Peter. Great to meet you. Um, so maybe you could just, before we get to your decision to resign, just talk a little bit about the work that you did in general, and then specifically as relates to Israel-Palestine. Well, I, I've been involved in the international human rights movement since uh, for more than 40 years. Uh, my, my consciousness around human rights issues started roughly with the election of Ronald Reagan, <laughs> uh, and a little bit before that, uh, at a moment when U.S. policy was, in my mind, on the wrong side of everything. There were, uh, U.S. was officially supporting apartheid in South Africa, was involved in death squads in Central America, was um, supporting oppression then as well in, in Palestine. Uh, and in my activism uh, during those years, I happened along UN documents. And I discovered that there was this institution out there that was official. It wasn't just like the movements in which I was uh, active, but it was an official institution. It was saying everything that we were, that there were these international rules that applied to everybody everywhere that were being violated and that these were things for which accountability must be insisted upon. Um, so I um, actually entered the UN first as a legal intern in the 1980s. Um, and um, and you know, discovered that there was useful work to be done there. And so after uh, a brief stint as a lawyer, I returned to the UN in 92, as you said, and I worked there all those decades on dozens of countries all around the world um, and, um, and believing in the UN Charter and the mission of the UN and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Human Rights Treaties uh, and in our opportunities to work in solidarity with human rights movements uh, around the globe who were struggling struggling for their rights in so many different in so many different places. Um, and, you know, I, I should say as well that the, the letter that has gone viral that I wrote to the High Commissioner for Human Rights is a critique, but it's not a critique of the whole UN. It's not a critique of the idea of the UN. And it's certainly not a critique of those human rights monitors, humanitarian workers, the over 100 UNRWA staff who have been killed under Israeli bombs in the last few weeks, uh, but really of the political side of the house including certain intergovernmental bodies and the political leadership at the top that I thought were pursuing a path that uh, opened a very wide breach between the norms and standards of the organization that all those good UN workers were working for on the one hand and the political positioning of the organization on the other. And I, I believed it was because a kind of trepidation, a kind of fear had creeped into the organization of pushback from powerful member states uh, and uh, um, uh, Israel lobby groups and others who could make your life a living hell if you dare to speak out on uh, on these issues. So, um, yeah, I never left the idea of the UN. I continued to work in solidarity with my colleagues there, 
but I, I think it's a moment when they need to right the ship uh, because it's heading in a bad direction or has been. So what made the UN's response to this particular crisis, this particular, whatever you want to call it, disaster, um, uh, uh, so different than previous responses that you felt it necessitated your 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 resignation? I, I imagine there would have been moments in other other places in other times where civilians were being were being killed, where the UN may not have responded quite as you wanted. What what made this so different? Yeah, I mean, I had been involved in internal critiques around the UN's response to uh, the genocide in Myanmar, uh, uh, Sri Lanka, you know, a number of cases around uh, the world where there was a, a kind of a, a dialogue and even a review and a soul searching inside the UN where those failures were and what sort of corrections needed to be made. But I had seen a trend over a long period of time of a particular fearful approach when it came to Israel and Palestine that was not typical of the UN's response in other areas. And we knew where that was coming from because the pushback from powerful member states in particular uh, is something that is uniquely brought to bear when it comes to uh, human rights critique in that part of the country. So when you say powerful, you mean you mean United States in, in particular? UK, a number of European countries. Uh, Europe in particular is something that that bites very hard. Europe traditionally was the part of the world that was funding and supporting the UN human rights program the most of any any region of the world. We entered into a lot of difficult conversations with Europe in in recent years because of their treatment of migrants, uh, ethnic minorities, and then most recently uh, their response to what's been happening in in Gaza. I think has been quite uh, quite horrific, and those those kinds of critiques are strongly felt. But of course, the U.S doesn't engage in international politics, international affairs, the UN, just as a sort of typical participant. The US doesn't simply register its disagreement with a resolution. It mobilizes massive resources, diplomatic and otherwise, economic resources, threats, carrots of every kind, in order to push for particular outcomes in the United Nations before you even get to the idea of its veto in the Security Council preventing any preventive action. And so the U.S. through the years has very actively opposed most of the U.N. human rights program. It has opposed our work on economic and social rights uh, based upon international standards that say that healthcare and housing and water and sanitation are uh, not commodities for sale or privileges to be born into, but human rights that are supposed to be guaranteed. It opposes that, opposes the U.N.'s position on capital punishment, abolitionist position. It opposes the U.N.'s agenda on anti-racism. It opposes child rights. The U.S. is the only country on the planet, 193 countries, that has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it wields that power in budget processes, in political processes, in powerful demarches behind the scenes with senior leaders in the U.N., and it gets a lot of what it wants uh, by doing that. To a lesser extent, that's also true of the U.K. and some other European governments and other powerful governments as, uh, as well. But nowhere is that sort of brute force deployed more directly than it is with regard to human rights in Palestine, uh, and particularly for the United States, which has made that a centerpiece of its engagement with the UN. As you will see, if you ever watch a, a confirmation hearing for a UN uh, for a US diplomat to be posted to the UN or, or listen to their statements in the Security Council, the General Assembly, the Human Rights Council, that's kind of a centerpiece is sort of defending impunity uh, for its allies, especially especially for, uh, for Israel, and it makes that felt. And that has affected the climate inside the UN, even well-meaning people who want to be principled and who want to apply the standards equally, regardless of who is the perpetrator and who is the victim, do react differently 
uh, by these, these pressure campaigns and by these campaigns of mostly US-based, but not entirely, uh, organizations that are set up specifically for the purpose of supporting Israeli impunity by attacking UN human rights mechanisms, UN staff, uh, human rights defenders globally who, who dare to raise these issues. And, uh, and I felt that that had bitten so deeply that we had reached a point where we were, where the UN was, had become very hesitant to apply its own norms and standards in the same rigorous way. And again, I'm talking about the political side of the UN, because in the meantime, you've got independent UN human rights mechanisms that don't answer to the secretariat or to member states who have been absolutely principled, you know, unshakingly so. Uh, independent special rapporteurs, commissions, inquiry, treaty bodies, and so on. The political side of the House, I think, had given in to that pressure. And I felt that very strongly, especially in March, after some of the Israeli uh, military attacks on civilians in the West Bank, and then especially after the settler pogrom in Hawara village on, on the West Bank, um, uh, and there was a kind of a whispered response where I thought it needed to be a much more, a much stronger response. And I was speaking out very publicly at that time and was then subjected not just to a, a campaign of smears uh, uh, and very personal attacks by some of these impunity organizations, but by pushback inside my own organization, an effort to silence me uh, that I felt was unsustainable. And that's when I made a determination that, okay, I can be more impactful outside the organization inside after 32 years. Um, and I indicated to the High Commissioner for Human Rights that I was concerned about this trend of trepidatious responses to the situation that I thought we needed to stand up to these lobby groups and to powerful Western governments like the US. Uh, and, and that if we censor ourselves, you know, we're, we're abandoning the victims and we are allowing ourselves to be cowed in ways that we shouldn't be, because it's not fair and to not apply the standards equally uh, uh, everywhere. And then indicated that in, in the coming months, I would leave the organization on that basis. And of course, the situation on the ground got much worse subsequent to that, which is when I penned uh, my official letter that then went viral, describing where I thought the UN was falling down on Israel and Palestine and the direction I think it needed to go in to be true to its norms and standards. So you had decided to resign in in, in protest of that is what what the UN was doing long quite a quite a quite a number of months before then October seventh and the subsequent Israeli response. Months before, I had no intention of leaving the UN this year. Mm -hmm. I wasn't planning to stay forever. I was thinking, you know, in a couple of years, I would uh, I, I would leave. Um, and I was not fired, as some of the disinformation has suggested, based upon mm -hmm. the campaign against me. Um, in fact, they asked me to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, I said I, I didn't think that I could. Um, but uh, I, I thought with that letter was an opportunity to spell out in detail what my exact concerns were and how I thought we needed to, to right the ship of the UN when dealing with this particular situation. The UN, I mean, bears a lot of responsibility historically for the suffering of the Palestinian people, and I think for the continuation of the conflict and the that is rooted in the suffering of the of the Palestinian people. And there's a it, you know it's like a it's like a great big um, giant ship. You know, it, it's a it's a hard vessel to turn. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's gotten caught in these. Sort of knee-jerk responses and political taglines that mean nothing mm -hmm. that resembles to reality on the ground, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and that's not good enough when you have massive atrocities taking place. So, so you feel like so you feel like there's there's the qualitative difference in the UN's failure when it comes to 
Israel-Palestine than it, than in Myanmar or other situations where there were, you know, where there were there were even things approaching genocide. I think the, the big difference is between the way powerful member states of the UN, in particular Western states, in particular the US, the UK, uh, and that are treated and are, are dealt with. So if they are allied, for example, their alliance with Israel creates a kind of sh shelter. The UN responds differently in those situations than it does, for example, in replying to you know abuses committed by armed groups or by weak state, weaker states. But don't this, I mean, the case of Myanmar, I mean, aren't there also cases where other powerful non-Western states like China, for instance, act to, to protect countries that are committing human rights abuses? Absolutely. And uh, but uh, China, while it is ascendant in the international architecture, and we've seen a much more assertive China in recent years than we have ever seen in all of my decades uh, in the UN, it still doesn't have uh, the capital <laughs> let's say within the organization that a member state like like the United States does, and it still doesn't get the reactions that it does. There is a, a sort of general instinct to be more deferential to powerful member states, including all of the P5, China, mm -hmm. Great Britain, France, and, and the United States. But this would this is kind of the extreme. This is the case on, on the extreme. So uh and and to be clear, the UN also dropped the ball on Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Uh mentioned that, you know, we 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 had I myself was involved in that. I, I was involved in testifying before the Security Council uh, in a situation where you had a senior political person of the organization testifying about how lovely everything was. This was before the open genocide that occurred there, uh, because there was an effort to say we've had elections, we're returning to normalcy, bring in the investment, we did a great job, everything is fine. And then it was my turn to speak, and I completely dismantled that and took a very strong position with regard to the treatment of minorities, Karens and others, but um, uh, uh, but especially the Rohingya uh, and the vulnerabilities and the abuses and the, the law-based discrimination uh, and the persecution that was taking place. And there was that tug of war going on inside the organization. And by the way, it wasn't just China that was bringing those pressures. It was Western states who were positioning their own companies for massive investments inside of Myanmar and wanted to project normalcy. And of course, months later, we saw a full-scale genocide um, unfolding there. So to be clear, the UN has dropped the ball in other cases, the political side of the house, but nowhere is this more um, acutely felt than in the situation in the Middle East. And it's, it's not by accident. I mean, there, there are, there's a dedicated effort on the part of the US, for example, to push back on any critique of Israel. And we saw through WikiLeaks, for example, uh, that during a, a previous investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity by Israel, headed by Justice Goldstone, that the U.S. unleashed its entire diplomatic mechanism, invested massive amounts of money, and uh, uh, and mobilized all of its missions around the world to try to interfere with and block the investigation that was carried out by Justice Goldstone and uh, and others. We had never seen something like that, you know, in in other situations, and. Demarches to bring pressure on leaders within the UN to be silent when it comes uh, to Israel. Uh, and then the other technique that is felt very much is by these lobby groups, some of which have been specifically set up next to the UN to focus entirely on UN personnel and silence comes to, to, to Israel. And the organization is so afraid of these attacks because they'll mm -hmm. smear, they'll call you an anti-Semite for Israeli human rights violations. Uh, and nobody, if especially if you're somebody who spent your life working in human rights, you don't want to hear that kind of a thing, right? I mean, that, that most people know that these smears where they're coming from, and it's not serious and so on. But nevertheless, it has an impact. Mm -hmm. And 
um, staff who are subjected and officials who are subjected to those kinds of uh, attacks feel a pressure to restrain themselves. Mm. Uh, those smears work to a certain degree. They only work because senior officials in the UN allow them to work. Mm. And I, I made the case that when that happens, we need to raise our voice higher, not lower, because that's the only way to disarm those kinds of uh, those kinds of activities. Yeah, so it's in particular in this case uh, where you feel very strongly an imbalance in the, in the reactions and responses. So what would you have liked the UN to do uh, in response first to Hamas's, both to Hamas's massacre on October 7th and Israel's policies uh, and attacks in Gaza? Well, the UN did what it should do with regard to the attacks on October 7th, and it, it spoke out very forcefully, uh, called the mm. crime, demanded accountability for perpetrators and redress for victims. Mm. And I can tell you, after September 11th in the US, it's the same thing that we did. We appealed to the United States to deal with the attacks on September 11th as a crime against humanity mm. and take advantage of the opportunities for global cooperation to pursue perpetrators and hold them mm. accountable mm. instead through a global temper tantrum and ended up literally causing the deaths of millions of innocent people in the world. Um, and in this case, the UN, as I said, is very good if it's an armed group that commits mm. events. Mm. Where it fell down, it seems to me, is in making the, and by the way, where the entire Western mm. political structure has fallen down, including media, is to say, absolutely, any Hamas perpetrators who were involved in or commanded war crimes on October the 7th must be held accountable under the rule of law. And because we're basing ourselves on international law, any Israeli perpetrators of war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, mm -hmm. war must be held accountable under the rule of law. And any Israeli perpetrators of atrocities happening since October 7th must be held accountable under the rule of law. If you just point out the weak link, like an armed group, small state, you're not taking International applies to everybody equally, as I say, regardless of who is the perpetrator and who is, is the victim. And because they're not afraid to criticize Hamas, fast mm. and loud, but because there is a certain trepidation when it comes to Israel and its allies, uh, that's where you see a more whispered response. Now, that's changing, but I think it's changing because we have seen an unscaled, uh, an unparalleled scale of atrocities that have happened. Uh, in Israel's uh, attacks on Gaza since then, including now probably more than 11,000 uh, who, who have been killed, women, children, men, many, many more thousands injured, massive discretion of churches and mosques and homes and hospitals and clinics and refugee camps and civilian in, uh, installations, uh, collective punishment that proceeded and has gotten worse, and now wholesale ethnic cleansing, at least of the north of Gaza. And, and I suspect that that's going to, that's going to, to continue. So it's impossible just in business as usual, say, two states, everybody get along, let's, you know. I've said that whole thing about the quartet and the two-state solution and the peace process and referring to the parties. There's a smokescreen. Mm. You saw continued dispossession, persecution, settlement expansion, gross violations of human rights, exacerbation of the situation for 30 years since Oslo, because it's so much easier just to say, let's work for a two-state solution mm. than to causes, which are inequality, which are which are the exclusion, marginalization, persecution of the indigenous people. Um, and, and I just said, this is a moment in history when you have to break with that stale paradigm. Nobody believes in it. They just keep saying it's much easier than addressing the situation on the ground. 
So you would have liked the UN to your primary priest, you would have liked the UN to speak out more forcefully about what about is about Israel's uh, abuses both before October 7th and after after October 7th. Yeah, when I say the UN, because as I say, the independent human rights mechanisms have been consistently right. Right. of the house. Uh, where, you know, if you sometimes if you listen, you would think this is just like a conflict between two countries over mm -hmm. religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you can't deal with it in that way. You know, my, the comparison I made, Peter, 1948 was the year we're celebrating this year, the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the mm -hmm. core of the entire international human rights movement and of the office that I that I worked for. That year, 1948, was also the year of the Nakba, the first ethnic cleansing, genocidal purge of Palestinians from what is what is now Israel. And it was also the year that apartheid was established in South Africa. Mm -hmm. The international response to apartheid in South Africa, I'm not talking about individual states, the US supported apartheid almost until it fell, uh, and Western countries as well. But the international institutions, the UN, maintained a consistent approach based on international human rights, international law, and the principle of equality right up until apartheid fell. Mm -hmm. They abandoned that approach with the adoption of Oslo. And they sold to a kind of amorphous political formula that maybe someday in the future would do something else. And in dropping that pressure, those demands, and not having an anti-apartheid movement with regard to Palestine, even though we did in the UN participate in that with regard to uh, South Africa, we in some ways contributed to the exacerbation of the situation that brought us to the horrors that we, we are now Witnessing. So what I wanted to see was the political side of the House not formulating their position based upon fear and pressure from powerful member states and lobby groups, but basing it upon the norms and standards upon which the organization is supposed to have been founded and based upon just common sense and facts. There's no one in the halls of the UN who thought that the old paradigm, uh, the quartet and the two-state solution and deferring to, when you say you're deferring to the parties to decide, you're talking about occupier and occupied, powerful mm -hmm. and oppressor and oppressed. You know, when, if you say you're deferring to the parties, it means you're deferring to Israel. Mm -hmm. It's been very clear throughout this throughout this period of continued settlement and so on. So, so to just to know to stand on the world stage and say this is what it's all about, what we're doing. When you know mm -hmm. reality behind the curtain, it seems to me is a breach of, of our obligations. And if I have any that you know. Civil society is going to force and the UN by extension mm -hmm. to stop attention to the realities on the ground and to start basing proposed solutions on the normal standards we believe in, human rights, equality, the rule of law, not upon this, this vague political program. Right. You use the word uh, genocide. Um, uh, my, I'm, I'm curious about your thinking in, in using it. My understanding is that, for instance, Human Rights Watch Amnesty have not applied the term genocide to, to Israel-Palestine, although they have the term, the, use the term, term apartheid. So there seems to be some debate in the among human rights activists, at least about uh, about their willingness to use this term. Why do you use it? Genocide scholars and human rights activists have been using it for a lot of years. Institutions, organizations, and I, I respect this, you know, I just came from a large institution that needs to mm -hmm. follow. UN has not declared genocide. Uh, mm -hmm. has not declared genocide either. And now these other organizations, that's because you have certain processes and protocols that have to follow before declared genocide. My complaint was, and I'll tell you why I've, I said as a human rights lawyer that uh, I think genocide is the right analysis. But my complaint was that the, you know, we base all of this on the UN Convention on Genocide, mm -hmm. which 
on the prevention and punishment of the crime of, of genocide. Mm. And um, the, the standard response from the UN has been, this needs to be decided in a court of law. We can't say it. Well, of course, mm -hmm. all crimes have to be decided in a, in a court of law. But the UN doesn't hesitate to allege war crimes, even crimes against humanity, torture, summary executions, other crimes before a court of law has pronounced on them. And the special treatment of genocide, I don't think, uh, is warranted. And the reason, again, that that's done is because of fear. Genocide is so politicized that it's asserted in cases where that's not the crime that's being committed, other kinds of horrific crimes. And then it's denied in cases where it seems clear. And what I've said is if you approach this solely as a, and, and of course, from the point of view of prevention, you can't wait until a court of law has decided, otherwise you failed in your obligations under prevention. I've said what's so special about this case First of all, the catalog of the specific acts that are in the Genocide Convention that have been perpetrated here. You know, you can often find like the requirement of serious harm, that's happened here. Uh, mass killings, that's happened here. Right? But you have things like um, uh, imposing conditions of life that are designed to bring out the destruction of a group in whole or in part. Here's a very special case where Gaza has literally had conditions of life intentionally imposed on them at least since 2015, one could argue before, where food and water and sanitation and uh, medicine and infrastructure and movement political rights have been intentionally imposed to make it a place where conditions of life are unbearable. That's a difficult thing to prove in other cases, but here it's on the record because it's been investigated and monitored and documented so much. And then the most important thing, Peter, that is so distinct here, in other cases where you allege genocide, you have to do this behind the scenes work where you go through the dusty files uh, and archives of the government to find correspondence and communications to get evidence of genocidal intent. The mm. convention has an intent, together with these acts, an intent to destroy in whole or in part a particular group as such. Mm -hmm. You have, on the record, multiple public statements of genocidal intent expressed by the president, the prime minister, senior cabinet ministers, senior military officials, think tanks uh, associated with the government, on the record, in speeches, in declarations, mm -hmm. uh, um, saying that we will not distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, they're, they're all guilty. Statements of intent to wipe out all of the, the Gaza uh, Strip. Statements dehumanizing Palestinians in viciously racist sort of ways that would be evidence uh, of genocide as well. Even the minister uh, invoking a biblical passage hmm. of Amalek, uh, call for wiping out the entire population as the verse goes, men, women, children, and as well as their livestock, uh, their goats and their asses, uh, and sparing none. This is very rare. And this, to me, is the sound of impunity, because... It's only if you think you're not going to be held accountable that you would so publicly declare these kinds of intentions. So in my years as a human rights lawyer, I've never seen such an obvious case, at least a prima facie case, mm -hmm. uh, genocide that should be subject to investigation and prosecution um, under, under the rule of law. And to wait for a court of law to decide that later before you mobilize around genocide prevention is also for us a breach of those obligations. I want to say one more thing about this, if you allow me. Those obligations and the obligations of international humanitarian law mm. don't just fall on the perpetrator. Mm. 
genocide, for example, what's outlawed in the convention is genocide, attempted genocide, incitement to genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, and complicity mm -hmm. in genocide, crime under that convention. The Geneva Conventions that cover all the war crimes that we're concerned about that overlap with the concept of, of genocide imposes not just an obligation to respect it by countries that are involved in the, in the conflict, but you are actually obliged to ensure respect vis-a-vis -vis other states over which you have influence. That's an obligation of humanitarian law. And what the, what's happened, let's take the United States, but also the UK and some European countries, not only are they in breach of their obligation to ensure respect because they're not doing everything they can to get Israel to back off from these attacks on civilians and so on, but they're actually, the US is actually financing, arming, providing intelligence support, providing diplomatic cover, even providing a veto in the Security Council to stop protection, which raises to the level in international law of complicity, of actual complicity. And, and what, one of the points that I tried to make also in my letter is that the UN has for years engaged with the US as if it's a mediator. Mm -hmm. And the US, in fact, is a party to the conflict on the side of Israel. It has been for many, many years. And we have to engage them, but we have to engage them as a party to the conflict not defer to them as some sort of mediating presence. They clearly are, are, are not that. They have a diplomatic role to play, but we have to engage them as uh, as they are. And in this case, we need to look for accountability of any states that are implicated in this, just as you look for accountability of any states that might be implicated in Hamas's uh, um, war crimes. That's how international law works. So in, there, there have been there have been some, generally from a different part of the political spectrum, who who have suggested that perhaps. If the notion, if, if if genocide has to do not with killing all the members of a of a of a of a of a group necessarily, but with the intent to do that, with killing with the intent, that 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 all might that that could also potentially apply to Hamas, given statements, you know, for instance, its first its first charter or statements that they would, you know, that they would like to continue actions like October seventh, even to a thousand times, and the and the. So I, I'm curious, do you think there is a case? That um, that Hamas could also be considered of in of at least intent to genocide. I mean, I think uh, Hamas Hamas is an armed group. Mm -hmm. um, grew up in Gaza. I mean, these are people who are indigenous from Gaza, who are, who many of whom, by the way, were born into the cage and have never left. Mm -hmm. you, you have to take note of that as well. And uh, they have a conservative religious ideology, which is not mine. Uh, to, to be sure. As an armed group under foreign occupation, they have a right to resist under international law. What they do not have a right to do is to uh, kill civilians. To, if, if Hamas had just been involved in a military operation and had military right. security and so on, uh, they'd still be called terrorists and so on, but there would be, under international law, it would be difficult to make complaints. Where civilians are targeted, Hamas needs to be held accountable. Those are certainly war crimes. Genocide, here you would have to prove intent as well. You'd have to prove that what they're trying to do is to wipe out yeah. um, as such. What they say is what they're trying to do is to liberate themselves from foreign occupation, which is not a genocidal intent. But if yeah. you could, that what they wanted to do is something, uh, something else, to wipe out, uh, uh, let's say, Israelis as a group, uh -huh. uh, to make a case of, uh, of genocide. Um, yeah, I think I think a, a part of the problem in analysis in the West in particular is that you know, it's not an accident. There's a sort of effort to try to portray Hamas as ISIS. Hamas is not ISIS. Mm -hmm. Hamas is Boy Scouts and they're not ISIS. You know? um, 
Uh, Hamas is a, a homegrown um, political movement, political party. They are a quasi-governing institution in the Gaza Strip, not with legitimacy because the last elections were many, many years ago and Gazans have not had an opportunity to choose who, who should govern them uh, for far too long. Um, they have social programs, all those sorts of things, and they have a military wing. Right. That wing that has a right to fight has to fight uh, respecting international uh, law, but they're not some group that sort of came in, you know, like ISIS, looking to establish uh, some sort of oppressive uh, state or whatever. They they see themselves as liberation, as liberation. Right, right. Although I think they are oppressive in Gaza, but but they're not a transnational group. They're a nationalist organization. Right, right. Hamas, I mean, you know, Hamas is a very conservative religious organization. Right. They're, right. they're not secular like the PLO or right. the. Uh, political groups and so on, um, but um, but yeah, but they're subject to the they're subject to the same rules of international law as is Israel and as uh, is everybody else, and they have to be held accountable in in that regard. But you need to be honest about what you're dealing with uh, in this. Uh, I think you know one of the big things for me, Peter, is is the, the subjectivity, the imbalance in the way that these things are described in the West. Mm -hmm. Prisoners too. All of those those prisoners held in Gaza have to be released. Hmm. That's that's a violation of the of the laws of war. I understand why they did it because they wanted to secure release for the Palestinian prisoners. But what you don't hear is the same sense of urgency in the West hmm. about thousands of Palestinian prisoners, including children, mostly hmm. having committed anything that we would call a crime, most without charge or trial, being held under administrative uh, detention, being held in terrible conditions, routinely subjected to beatings, torture cruel and human degrading or treatment or punishment in their thousands, those numbers being increased in every day on the West Bank uh, and Jerusalem in, in particular, but you don't hear the same sense of urgency. And what I'm saying is, you know, we have to be outraged by the taking of prisoners, mm -hmm. they whether they are Israelis or Palestinians or somebody else who gets caught in the, uh, in the crossfire. And that's the international law approach, but it's not the political approach that we see dominating uh, in this Conflict. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Craig, for sharing your time and analysis. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, uh, and thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMVP website, fmvp.org, for resources related to the podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMAP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you, Peter.